Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. This week on Accent of Women, we take a creative look at the art of spoken word as political expression. My guest today is Sister Zai, or Zai Zunda. She's a poet. She acts, writes, draws, DJs, sings, plays, laughs and travels. Find her on Facebook, Sister Zai, S-I-S-T-A-Z-A-I. She is Sister Zai storyteller and thought leader. I'm just going to hand straight over to Sister Zai. She introduces herself and explains a little bit about her performing name and what motivated her in her spoken word. My name is uh, Zai. I perform under the name Sister Zai and I write as Zai Zander. Um, that's the name I gave myself. I do have a, a, what I call the government name. <laughs> All the official stuff goes through that name, but I prefer to use Zai Zander. Um, so how did I start performing? I was a really shy kid, um, so my mom took me to a speech and drama class when I was quite young, about six, to encourage me to speak up in class and, you know, contribute to conversation. And I just took to it like a duck to water. And so I've been performing since I was six, but I was always performing in other people's plays, performing other people's stories. And growing up in, in Africa, in a middle class family, a lot of those stories were about the colonial um, country. Um, so they were about England. Um, and I love Shakespeare, you know, I love all those stories. Um, I got to a stage in my 20s, however, when I started to wonder what would my story actually be if I wrote it with, I don't want to use the word authentic, but I really haven't found another word in the language that I use to describe um, like a, a story that would resonate deeply with myself. So how did I get politicized around it? Really, it was due to a man called Philip Darby. I transferred to the University of Melbourne and I was studying uh, international relations. And he had a very unique approach. Um, I suppose he was decolonizing methodologies and how we understand the other. And especially in uh, international relations where it's often about it's a very paternalistic approach to so-called third world countries and third world peoples where they're often seen as in some way lacking and in need of um, assistance to um, improve themselves or get on the progress train. And that train has been designed uh, and um, that route has been pretty much planned by the nations that are more advanced. So his approach was to actually try to get to the voices of the people, whatever that is. And then we get into like subaltern studies and all, you know, the, the discourse around that. Um, but what he encouraged me to do, because he had actually spent some time in Zimbabwe, was to look at literature from Zimbabwe, to actually find biographies and autobiographies and to start to communicate my truth and to talk about my lived and everyday experience. So at first I was like, this is not going to fly. Like, how can you... You know, you, I was the kind of person who was trained to think that the only person who could speak about something was an expert. So I wasn't trained to think that people on the ground, grassroots people, could actually have an understanding and a nuanced understanding of big political events, which was the extent of my colonization. I mean, it's, so that's how it became politicized. It's actually an act of uh, decolonizing my thinking within the academy. Why don't you share with us um, 
a piece that is reflective of um, that decolonisation process? Sure. So this piece, um, I think I think all the pieces are a bit reflective of that, but I'll start with uh, this one and maybe I'll explain what it's about after. The conversation is always the same, you know, the conversation, well, it's just always the same. And really it's about his hard work. And yes, hard work put food on the table and a roof over my head. So it surprises him when this expensively educated law school graduate of a daughter announces that she's going to support the family by writing books. He clears his throat. Fingers toy nervously with the cork in hand. He rotates it over and over and over again until you see story spills out of him. You see his father dying came to visit him when he too was full of dreams and spoke of blood and responsibility, of generations gone down in gold mines and on plantation fields, of my grandmother planting peanuts in substandard soil every year so children could go to school and never have to toil. So you see, the conversation is always the same. Are you a lawyer yet? The part of that that really um, that that I got out of that w- was the issue of class, actually, um, and I noticed that you identify as a middle class African woman now in Australia. That's an interesting lot of intersectionality. You know, often we talk about the working class black woman in Australia and you know that's kind of like the pinnacle of oppression and of course oppression isn't as simple as that. Tell me a little bit about some of those class elements that you talked about so being the daughter of a lawyer but also having a history of that lawyerism coming out of poverty and working or underclass. Um, I think, and this is the interesting thing, um, being middle class was is actually a sign that you've escaped the harshest consequence of colonization because for much of Southern Africa, um, colonization involved creating um, an excess supply of um, wage laborers for the mining industry, for the agricultural industry. And having, of course, you know, with uh, economics and understanding that an excess supply of labor means wages are kept low. So we had a system of wage labor migration, of which my grandfather was the part um, of the men who were forced to leave their villages and um, migrate to towns, often went across borders to places like South Africa um, to find work in the mines. So even though you're middle class, you still have connections and very close connections and stories that are told about being working class. So trying to escape poverty, grinding poverty, um, that would force people to live in um, what they called hostels for men because women weren't often allowed to travel. And uh, there would be a lot of men just crammed into one hostel, sharing a bed, taking turns, doing 18-hour shifts in the mines. And 
I mean, you're a woman and obviously empowered around your womanness. So I would call you a feminist. Is that? Yeah, I would definitely call myself a feminist. <laughs> I mean, it's um, it can be a polarizing issue these days for leftists. So you know, it was worth checking. Um, what? Uh, and this is already going to sound like too big a question because what I want to say is what's it like being woman in Africa and, of course, your experience of Africa is southern Africa. Um, but are there differences between the experiences of working class men and working class women and what can you say about that? I would definitely say there's vast differences. Um, as a woman, um you had very little chance of finding some form of wage labor. So a lot of the um, employment opportunities um, are around brewing beer, which was an illegal activity um, under colonization, and um, around sex work, or what people would have termed sex work, uh, which is, there's a whole different um, definition to that um, that's pertinent to that. It's basically women selling their domestic labor, um, to men who had migrated to urban areas. And these women had actu actually taken it upon themselves to run away from the increasingly harsh conditions in the rural areas and find a better life for themselves in the cities uh, because a lot of the rural patriarchs had been um, were becoming a lot stricter and um, because the whole system of kinship was breaking down, they needed to find a way to maintain control over the young people. And so you know, became very warped, things like uh, um, ceremonies around marriage and understandings of what marriage actually meant became warped and skewed more towards um, imposing a price on a woman's head uh, so she could be married. You know, so we have the a culture of bride price, uh, the value and the worth of a woman according to her education level, um, according to how hard basically she can work and what kind of labour she can um, bring to her new family. And as a consequence of that, not many women were uh, often educated past a certain point because it was seen as, well, what's the point? She's going to go to another family and contribute to to their household. So we'll just educate her to a particular level. Some people, that was the attitude. Um, not within my family, though. Within my family, it was, um, it was definitely about educating everyone and giving everyone a fair go. And I think uh, one of my father's... Um, main reasons for educating his daughters is that he realized that within the wage labor system there were very few opportunities for women but as professionals we would have a lot more opportunities for freedom. Let's hear another one of your pieces. So um, this one is an interesting one. It's a bit of a love poem. <laughs> Where Shirley want me Wangifunya wangenyanya Uzankumbulam slaupela manla Uzankumbulam slaupela manla Speak to me softly Oh speak to me slowly Speak to no one Speak to me only. You may not know of my existence. And if you do, you show no sign. 
Oh, I take you for worse. Oh, I take you for better. I just want for you to be mine. Ejected from my homeland, I traveled far. And yes, it is far to come and just settle here, my dear. But I, I flew here, my love, in a rush, in a hurry, in a hurry to find a place to rest, to rest right next to you. Wem Shelly Wami. I came flying high in a red metal kangaroo traversing the sky across oceans of deep blue and sparkling hue and between nations this red kangaroo abounded, leaping high, making a mockery of mere geophysical division and time and time. And eventually this red metal kangaroo landed and I landed here in this place of ancient and new peoples where, despite the warmth of the sun on my face and the beauty before my eyes, I constantly feel cold, alone. Speak to me softly. Speak to me slowly. Speak to no one. Speak to me only. I walked into that airport lounge with a bounce in my step, joy and excitement twinkling in my eye when I caught sight of you tall, handsome in the crowd, and I yelled at your name. I yelled at your name, but from you, I received nothing, not even a whisper. Not even a nod. Wem Shelly Wami Wangi Funya Wangenyanya Uzankum Pulam Flau Bella Mandla Uzankum Pulam Flau Bella Mandla Wow. Tell me a little bit about that piece. Well, that piece I originally wrote because um, I was having a hard time when because I'm in this context, uh, this social context, and I was having a hard time articulating to people were getting very curious about, well, what's racism? And I was like, well, think of about rejection, being rejected in love. So originally that piece was written with that intention in mind. The song that I've incorporated into that piece, however, is a traditional Zulu love song. I'm not really great on the pronunciation, so feel free to put me up <laughs> and teach me how to say it. But it's a song that um, I fell in love with when I was 15, 16. And um, as I grew older and came into myself as a woman, I really started to analyze the whole concept of love and romantic love and um, why it's so important and how it fits into probably the whole capitalist um, system. So... That piece, I think, is my way of working my way through um, male-female relationships and understanding, um, I think, the consequence as well of colonization on how people perceive themselves as beings and in relationship to one another. Um, yeah, because I would say there was, there was some radical transformation to our kinship systems, and uh, love is probably the easiest way to affect the way that people relate to one another because it's such a powerful emotion that it can 
um, if you can get to that place in people's psyche and make subtle shifts, it actually changes everything, the whole way that we relate to one another. Is that a bit confusing? I don't know. It's it's not at, at all. It was, um, look, I, yeah, I, th- I thought it was a quite profound. You know, I think people underestimate the impact and power of love, particularly when you're an activist and everything is such a fight and such a battle. Um, those emotions that really do drive us, we keep separate from the struggle sometimes. Actually, it's... Um, a cornerstone of the struggle. It's why we're in the struggle. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. You talked about racism and colonialism. And I want to ask about what is going to be quite quite a complex set of ideas because you're you're African in a country that was colonised and now you're African in another country that was colonised but not yours. And there are the Indigenous people of this country suffering the effects of colonisation in the form of um, deep entrenched oppression. What does that mean for you and your racial identity? Um, as, As a person who was born about, I think, 10 months before national independence in Zimbabwe, I was always very conscious of the process and system of colonization um, and curious about it. Um, My uncles and aunts would often talk about uh, their treatment at the hands of police. uh, And of course, the, uh, the liberation struggle was a huge part of their growing up with many people um, running away to participate in the guerrilla struggle, a lot of people ending up in Russia, Cuba. Um, I went to school with people whose parents had been involved um, in the camps, training people to fight in the camps in Mozambique. So that I have, I have a real consciousness around um, the struggle for liberation. And um, I was always a bit uh, upset that I wasn't born um, in 1980 because that generation was known as born free. And that concept of being born free is, and this is what everyone would say, you guys are born free. This country is yours. You can be and do anything you want to do now. It's yours. We've already fought the struggle for you. I I didn't really understand it. You know, I was a bit confused about it, but people and different kinds of people from my parents' generation would constantly reiterate that. And it was often put across in our names because our names were deep Shona names. And um, and they weren't English names, whereas our parents had English names because they needed to have those names in order to, to progress through the system. In order to be enrolled in school, you had to be baptized. You had to have an English name. Um, so that was always a real contrast between my generation coming up and my parents' generation. So when I moved to Australia, and I think you, you see this in the other poem that I wrote, um, because that is about coming into this space and uh, becoming a racialized being and feeling rejected and unloved in the space um, and trying to understand that, but as well trying to understand how a person like myself can enter, a black woman can enter into a country and have more rights than the black people 
of this country and to be given more respect and authority, even though it's not equal to the respect and authority given to other beings in this space. Um, I am very conscious that in comparison to sovereign peoples, I have a privilege. So I became very curious about the history of colonization very, very quickly, very early on. And it was more from, through an embodied understanding of what colonization is. My parents took us to South Africa when I was quite young. My mom did actually. And I remember walking through the streets of um, a town. It was a, a northern border town. And there were, you know, white ladies clutching their purses and looking at me so fearfully. It was a time of transition. Nelson Mandela had just come out of prison. And um, my mom didn't really say why she took us there, but I now understand that she wanted us to, to really get what living under oppression felt like. So then coming here, um, I felt that same sense. And I couldn't, I didn't have the language for it, but I felt it in my body. And I was confused because I couldn't see people who looked as I had imagined an Aboriginal person would look like. I couldn't see them. So I had questions, but I was studying at institutions that wouldn't give me the answer. And I love libraries and I spent a lot of time in libraries and there would always be like a small section of the library dedicated to those cultures. But it always seemed to be written from a management perspective. So I became curious about where do I find, how do I interact? So I would say the first eight years were frustrating because I couldn't find anything. I couldn't really get the answers that I wanted. And then over time, um, I came to understand that the system of apartheid in South Africa was written here in Queensland. And things started to make sense. We've got time for one more piece. Maybe your favourite. Yes, today I fell in love <laughs> with a river red gum. 400-year-old knobby, scarred, scratched, smoothed bark, silver, red river gone with thick old boughs that reach out crooked but wise extending a little to the left and then to the right but always upward to the sky And she showered 
with a love vibration. So intense. I had to gasp. So powerful. I felt sucked right into the heart of her. You are so beautiful, Mama River Red Gum. You are beautiful. Wow, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing such personal um, and, you know, thought-evoking stories and your work as well, which is obviously a product of the deep depths of your soul as evidenced by, you know, what it's brought up in this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And if listeners wanted to find out more about you and how they could access your spoken word and your music and your poetry how would they do that well I've got um I've got a Facebook page and for those who aren't on Facebook I've got um um, an Instagram and a Twitter (laughs) so I would do a search for sister Zai all one word s-i-s-t-a-z-a-i on Facebook and that'll bring up my Facebook page I'm also sister Zai s-i-s-t-a-z-a-i on Instagram and also on Twitter um, and if you want to listen to some music and some dub poetry that I've done, um, there's a piece called God as a Black Woman that you can find on my SoundCloud. And that's Zai, Z-A-I dash selects, S-E-L-E-C-T-S, Zai selects. That was Sister Zai, an incredible spoken word performer here in Melbourne, Australia. Check her out on social media. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au, and that's the digit three, not spelt out in letters. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna, and I look forward to your company again next week. We must begin to tell our young is the quest that's just begun